Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. And I think a lot of the creators that you're talking about are realizing that they're beholden to platforms whose incentives are very murky and who have the power to either create or end their career for reasons that will never be clear to them. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Rachel Hampton is a culture writer and the co-host of ICYMI, a digital culture podcast from Slate that gives funny and deep insights into the weird, wide world of the perpetually online. It's so fun to have her in the studio to unpack some of the most pressing online food questions of the moment. Think Stanley Cup trends, the bear thirst, plus her own food media consumption and more. Also on the show, Matt catches up with his friend Susie Karadze, author of The Mediterranean Dish. Rachel Hampton, this is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. I listen to ICYMI like all the time, and then I'm the person laughing on the subway. So <laughs> now we get to laugh in the studio together, which is so much better. Wow, I appreciate that. I, I love the thought of you just sitting on the train laughing at me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as it should be. Yeah, I mean, everyone should be. I'm not going to assume when someone's laughing on the train that they're actually just listening to me. I mean, that would be a lot, but <laughs> when in New York, who could say? It's so true. <laughs> so I'm really happy to have you on. I feel like we can talk about like food content, which is so fun, and media. We both went to the same journalism school. So I feel like we grew up in a similar era of like, what is food media? What is mm-hmm. media in general? But also I've heard that you're an amazing home cook. Oh my god! From friend of the podcast and our our friend Jesse Sparks. <laughs> uh, love of my life, former roommate, also went to the same journalism school. Yeah, really put us through a lot together. Mm-hmm. So I guess mm-hmm. to start, I'm just wondering, like, what is your food content consumption like in this specific mm-hmm. moment in time? So that's actually such a great question for right now because I'm currently in the last week of a two-month sabbatical from work. And for the last month, I have been off of all social media for the first time since I was maybe 12, basically since social media existed. Oh, my God. Is that where the glow is coming from right now? You've, like, transcended. (laughs) I mean, I hope so. Um, Although I do find that for some reason, my seasonal depression really gives me a glow. Like, people are always like, you look great. And I'm like, I just finished crying. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, So right now, it's very, my food content consumption habits are very, I guess, the most analog you'll get online. It's very much like just Googling recipes and seeing like which cup of Joe recipe comes up first or all of those recipe bloggers that have incredible SEO whose names kind of just blur together in my mind, half-baked harvest, you know, all of those people who, shout out to them, the real soldiers in the food content minds. Um, but I also just return to kind of a lot of recipes that I really like, which are 
I think, a mix of, like, New York Times recipes, recipes that I found through, like, Instagram or TikTok, or kind of just making stuff up as I go along. Yeah. Are you still making the Emily Mariko salmon bowl like, oh one time a week? Oh my gosh. I got a little sick of it towards the end of 2023, but I think once I start working again, it will definitely enter the rotation. I've been trying to eat less white rice. I'm really trying to branch out into other grains. Become a quinoa girly recently. Mm. So not quite as often, but I do eat a lot more kimchi now that I am in my post-Mariko bowl era. Yeah, I have to just give a suggestion if you're getting back into the Mariko kind of bowl for lunch is that I do that with like tinned uh, sardines that I have on hand. Oh. And it's like a similar vibe, obviously, yeah. but um, you like always, I can always have sardines in the pantry. And yeah. they're also a lower impact fish if you care about climate change. Ooh, Shout out so to that. To know. So that's my personal recommendation. I'll definitely be taking that. I guess when you're not offline off of all the social platforms do you find that you're getting food content like on your tiktok for example Mm -hmm. or are you kind of in other universes um a lot of tiktok i would say i specifically have a little you can bookmark tiktok specific folders on tiktok which i am obsessed with and i have a specific folder that's just recipes so whenever anything comes across my feed i'm usually trying to save it and it it diverges between extremely elaborate desserts that I probably will never make, but I have a fantasy that one Saturday in the summer, I'll be like, I'm going to go to the farmer's market and get some peaches and make a delicious crumble. And I'm going to save this recipe for the time that I do that. And then actual normal recipes that take maybe 20 minutes that I know I will actually make in my real life. I think that's really true. There is this total like as accessible as possible or as aspirational as possible. Mm -hmm. I don't know why gravitating to extremes. I guess that's just maybe what is performs on the platform. But Mm -hmm. I see a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the the format of TikTok being so approachable in general makes these really elaborate recipes seem less elaborate than they would if I was watching like Gordon Ramsay or somebody on Food Network do them. Yeah, because it takes like two seconds in the video. So exactly. it must take two seconds exactly. in real life. Exactly. I'm like, all that prep that you just did, that's going to take me 30 seconds and not half an hour. <laughs> so I don't have TikTok. I wow. deleted it for like self-restraint reasons because I, so I just can't do it in the middle speaking of the extremes, do you ever cook the recipes that you save on TikTok Mm -hmm. or you do? Yeah. Okay. I do. It depends on the recipe, but a lot of pasta recipes I find on TikTok usually turn out pretty well. Um, I've been trying to eat less meat. And so it's been really helpful to find really approachable vegan recipes, um, how to use tofu. I did the freeze tofu and then crumble it thing. I love that. Yes. And so I had heard about people doing this for so long. And I finally saw a TikTok recipe and I was like, I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. And it was great. And so I think seeing it, even if it's not actually as easy as it looks in a video, I'm like, that's easy enough. I can do that. Or you already know how to cook, so you don't necessarily need to follow it step by step. You can see something, which if you're listening and you don't know about this, it's basically that if you're freezing tofu and then thaw it, all of the water that was already in the tofu block when it's going back from the frozen to the 
I guess it's not a liquid, but the room temperature mm-hmm. tofu, all of the water comes out a lot easier. And so you can get this really like spongy, flavorful canvas for things. Yeah. And I think to me, that is the, like the really big perk of social media and food is that if you already know kind of how to do things and you're looking mm-hmm. for an idea or a technique to kind of get you going, it's kind of the quickest way to get that information. That's really true. It's very rarely do I come across recipe where... Or am I gravitating towards recipe where it's something I, I've never done before, but I'll usually have something that is just new enough for me that I'm like, I can incorporate that in. I just needed this kind of canvas to work with. Definitely. So I want to talk to you about an ICYMI episode that I listened to in the fall that sent me down a whole rabbit hole, which was about the like Orwellian world of vintage like fast food training videos from the 70s, like I think into the 90s, which just have like all of these like horror movie soundtracks Mm -hmm. and weird gimmicks um, and really kind of was so fascinating. Like, did you grow up seeing those or was that new for you? That was new for me. I remember that kind of era of weird advertising. I don't know if you remember there was like a... with either Taco Bell or Subway had this weird little monster that was in all of their commercials for a while. But those videos that we're talking about came from that same era. So I hadn't known about these videos. Slate staff writer Natish Pawa, who's great, had told me that the way he discovered it was that he was basically just high one day and he and his roommates found them on YouTube and just decided to keep watching them. Yeah, I can't say I'm surprised to hear that's the origin <laughs> Me neither. Uh, watching them, I kind of got the vibe that I should have been high, but it was a work episode, so I couldn't do that. But I had never seen them before doing this episode with Natish, and watching them now really made me wonder what McDonald's training videos look like in the TikTok era because they were really responding to what they perceived as youth culture in like the late 90s early aughts they had all these celebrities come on they had raps about how to properly clean the grill they were very high budget for something that was only going to be used internally which makes me think that whatever's happening right now behind closed doors in mcdonald's has to be wild I mean, someone needs to leak it if we they have all of these to. other videos. It, what it made me think about also when I was listening to this episode was you are talking about how there are all these elements of like youth culture in the videos, which would make me imagine that these all these fast food companies were really targeting like teenagers for mm-hmm. their like part-time or summer job. But I don't think that's actually the reality of like most people working in fast food, especially today. So I think that like it would be interesting to get our hands on these videos mm-hmm. because I wonder if they still are trying to market to this labor base that doesn't really exist anymore or if there is kind of more of a recognition of like who's actually doing these jobs. Yeah, and I wonder how it looks now after there was the kind of time period right after the like COVID stimulus where a lot of jobs at like McDonald's and fast food places were having a really hard time keeping staff because everyone was like, I don't want to work here. This sucks. Mm -hmm. And I almost wonder if their videos have incorporated any of that as people kind of come back to these jobs as inflation kicks everybody's ass. Yeah, honestly. And it makes me think about like brand antics in the food world Mm -hmm. in general, which a lot of that is happening on Twitter, aka X, um, (laughs) which is another platform that I'm not on, but still like get the content funneled to me. You know, I look at like Shirley's likes tweets. That's my like (laughs) curated example. That is a great curation tactic. It's really, I would recommend it to anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I'm wondering, like, are the brands still on Twitter X, like replying to each other with, with wild things? A lot of them have actually really scaled down their 
marketing on X ever since Elon Musk took over and Nazis took over the platform. That's actually been one of the huge kind of thorns in Elon Musk's side at the moment. I mean, there are a lot of thorns because he's a not a great person. There's a lot of sides to him. <laughs> he yeah. has a lot of sides that should be full of thorns. But one of them is that advertising, legitimate advertising has gone down. And that's why you're seeing so many scam ads on, on Twitter right now, because a lot of advertisers have really pulled back because of what's going on on X. I would say most of them are moving their dollars over to TikTok. So maybe we're going to see like TikTok version of brands replying to each other instead. I mean, we already do. If you look in the comment sections of any TikTok, it's just brands responding to the point that people are now just waiting for brands to pop up. Duolingo, for example, has one of the most noxious TikTok presences that I, I cannot stand. That fucking owl that is just everyone loves it. And it's so cringe to me. But you'll see like Pantene or Tarte or other makeup brand companies responding in the comments or sports teams, official accounts just in the comments of people's videos. Like, they're already doing it. And it, it's like an effective strategy, I guess, for them? Question mark? Yes. I think a lot of people just by familiarity are starting to think of them as friends in a way that is not great. There's just a certain level, I think, of skepticism towards advertising that most savvy internet users have now that brands are trying to circumvent by kind of doing the, we're a brand, but we're a cool brand. And we know we're not like a cool brand because we can't be cool. It's like companies knowing not to say we're all a family here, but basically acting in the same way. It's very fascinating and it's creating this weird register that people talk in that's almost brand speak but not quite yeah I feel like now that you're mentioning this I have to bring up another episode that I was listening to (laughs) which is the one with Devin Little on the BuzzFeed Try Guys era aka Mm -hmm. BuzzFeed set the Try Guys up to fail which I obviously could not help but connect to my own experience working at Bon Appetit during the YouTube era you know around like 2017 to 2020 um, and this like idea of like parasocial relationships. And as we're talking about brands, you know, trying to sell products on TikTok or being relatable, like it makes me think about the kind of content that media brands are putting out. And just this Mm -hmm. question about like, do we ever think these kinds of fandoms will be built around brands again, or has this kind of push towards authenticity or just more of an awareness about like, this is how media companies actually operate, especially after 2020, like kind of removed that ability for it to happen. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think one of the things that the Bon Appetit kind of downfall revealed was that in some ways it was the name brand Bon Appetit that was giving all of that kind of fervor. But in another way, it was the people who were there, that their individual fame and audience existed separate from Bon Appetit. And I think that's something that media companies in general are still trying to figure out is that they want people at their companies to be stars in their own right, because that's really the only way to sustainably grow at this point is people get really attached to individual people. But what that means is that those people get a lot of power in the situation And if they're not treated well, that becomes extremely obvious at a certain point to the audience or either through an expose or something that comes along that reveals we're kind of in the gotcha era where everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. 
And so I think it's a really big tension. I don't know if there's ever going to be a Bon Appetit test kitchen like that again, but I think media companies are really trying to figure out if they want to exist as platforms for people to build their own audience or if they want their platform to be the thing that people remember. Yeah, I think that tension is really interesting. And another kind of thread that comes to mind for me is this idea of people feeling like they are discovering somebody like before Mm -hmm. they are a capital S somebody, you know, and when I was working at BA and all these videos were happening, like those were my coworkers who had all these other parts of their job that weren't just making videos. And I think that something you often hear creators talk about is that like when you become very famous, the thing that you get known for like often is not sustainable with that level of fame. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that like it's interesting when talking about all kinds of media companies, whether or not it's food, like if you bring in someone that has an existing platform, then people don't necessarily feel like, oh, I knew them when they were more relatable. And I feel like responsible for watching them grow. It's kind of like, oh, this is another influencer content that's being given to me. Yeah. People really love the kind of idea of connecting to someone who's relatable. And I think that once a person's audience gets too big, that's just impossible for people to do because, I mean, I don't have 100,000 followers. When someone else does, it's just like, that's kind of a division between me and them that I see. And I can see how someone who is just not within the realm of creating content at all is looking at someone and thinking, how can you possibly be real when you have this many followers? It makes me think of like the fame of, you know, Wishbone Kitchen Mm -hmm. on TikTok, um, who's this private chef. She's a private chef for a really rich family in the Hamptons. And so every summer she would go to the Hamptons and kind of do a day in my life as a private chef in the Hamptons. And I think that's the kind of person that people are really interested in, where it's in the realm of wealth, but it's not the actual wealthy people or the actual brand creators or the actual rich people basically on camera you have access to all of it but the person who's showing you what it looks like is someone who's a worker kind of just like you yeah and they're working like a 14-hour day Mm -hmm. probably I'm really glad you mentioned this because I think like the billionaire chef private chef content really kind of popped off maybe last summer there's also that guy who cooks out in the Hamptons Mm -hmm. and I, I can't remember his name right now but maybe I can leave it in the show notes but he did a video I think around Thanksgiving he went home to his family and they have a very like normal, classic, non-billionaire kitchen. And he does this video of like making this really elaborate meal like he would be making for these clients, but in this very unbillionaire kitchen. And all of the comments are people being like, wow, it's so special and surreal to see this kind of food being made in this environment. Yeah, yeah. It, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think I know who you're talking about. There was a real Wishbone Kitchen kind of did it first, but there was kind of a real Super Bowl of TikTok chefs in the Hamptons this past summer where everyone realized that content kind of popped off. Yeah. And I do think like as a viewer, the one of the wildest parts to me is not necessarily the food that's being made because I think we all can, uh, you know, look at like a Nobu website or something and have a sense of what kind of food rich people are interested in, but rather just the sheer amount of work that goes into it and also that you're living in their house. Like, mm-hmm. I guess obviously you would have to because you're out in the Hamptons and you're working these really long days. But I think to see that in practice is very like the curtain is being raised. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't have any idea how rich people live. We watch Succession and we watch Nancy Myers movies. We watch these kind of looks inside rich people's lives. We watch Real Housewives. But they don't actually show the kind of scaffolding that makes an actual rich person's life work. They don't show the drivers. They don't show the maids. They don't show the private chefs. Um, And often the 
kitchen that a private chef is even cooking in is a special kitchen just for them. It's not even the family's kitchen. And so there's both, yeah, the idea that you're talking about of peeling back the curtain, but there's also this idea of kind of touching wealth without actually being morally culpable for it. Yeah. Yeah. And also I'm I'm now thinking like we don't know how much these people are being paid. So Mm -hmm. it's maybe a bit of the curtain is being raised, but we're in the backup kitchen. So we don't even really know what's Mm -hmm. happening. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. It's it's. And then Wishbone Kitchen has now reached a new level of fame and wealth. And I'm wondering how long her kind of tenure is going to last before people are just like, you're not relatable anymore. Right. And also like she might not want to do that job forever, yeah. but it might not be as interesting to see how she cooks for herself in comparison to these super long, intensive video days where you're just kind of left walk, being baffled that, you know, all of this is happening in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the difference between the views on the content of when she's just doing a dinner party for her friends in New York City versus those 14 hour days in the Hamptons, it's pretty astronomical. Okay. So while we're talking about like trends in the online food landscape, I have to talk to you about Jeremy Allen White. How long do you think this is going to last? <laughs> I don't know. He's not my cup of tea. Okay. Um, That's okay. <laughs> I just feel like I need to get that out of the way before I speculate on his longevity. Um... Is the bear going to have another season? Do you know? Definitely. Okay. I, I think that's definitely going to keep him in the spotlight for a bit longer. I'm interested to see what other projects come out for him. I know he's doing that wrestling movie with Zac Efron right now. Mm, Iron Claw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I did not see it, but some of our, our producers were, were very into it. So. Oh, okay. I didn't know if it was going to be good. I yeah. think he has at least another... I would say two years as as Internet White Boy of the Month, which is a category that is not just monthly despite the name. Yeah, I would say also like Jacob Elordi is really coming for that. So who could say? He is, but there are different white boys. You know, it's there's multiple genres of White Boy of the Month because you have Logan Lerman, who's basically White Boy of the Year. Everyone loves Logan Lerman, though he's barely in anything at this point. And then also Tom Holland, who is White Boy of the Month because he is... He's White Boyfriend of the Month. Exactly. He's in love with Zendaya and we're all in love with Zendaya and that makes him great yes. and then Jeremy Allen White who I think people mostly like because of the bear and because of that one still of him where his arms look great and that's they do look great I also think that like the bear prompted a lot of kind of like chef thirst online mm-hmm. and he is like the poster boy of that so it's kind of like the drinking out of a deli court container of it all you know yes yes i what i wonder is if someone is going to come for his spot if there will be another chef show and another hot chef because i think andrew scott benefited from being the only hot priest if there's another hot priest i don't know if andrew scott would have blown up as much as he did back in the day i think you're like totally right on that point which is so funny and i do think there will be more chef content because i think like the bear's success obviously it's a fantastic show we all love io like there are many reasons to be fans of it but i do think uh coming out of the early pandemic when everybody was cooking at home and like this kind of as food culture continues to become just culture, like there will be more content in that vein, especially Hollywood looking at the success and saying, okay, let's run that back. Mm-hmm. It, I wonder how accurate it's going to be because I know a lot of people have issues with the bear. Oh, really? I feel like everybody that 
all the food people I know say that it's like very accurate. Maybe it's the people I know from Chicago who have uh, issues with it. Oh, the Chicago is not accurate. Yes. Oh, okay. I could see that being true for sure. I do think that there are a lot of chefs that are like, oh, the the, the episode when all of the tickets are flying out, like that really happened to me, you know? And, yeah. Oh, I drink out of that container too. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine chef shows being really popular. I feel like that's not actually a genre of fictional television that's shown that often yeah but i did just start watching top chef kind of for the first time seriously do you watch it i don't but i know it's a bravo franchise that i'm not super familiar with but it does fascinate me it was just put on netflix which is why i started watching it i just was like clicking around one day and i saw it um but yeah there's something about it it is really just like cool to watch people that are so good at what they do that are competing over something and also it's kind of like a time capsule moment in food culture especially when you watch some of the older seasons Mm -hmm. i think that's one of the best parts of reality television for me is that it really does capture an era in such a detailed way that you when looking back on it you're just like i forgot we used to wear dresses like that I forgot we used to wear ballet flats with flare jeans all the time. It's just all these little things you don't remember from a time period that you lived in. Yeah, totally. I was watching an episode from like maybe the early 2010s era and kale salad. Everyone was just fixating on. And I was like, wow, I mean, I eat that at home a lot, but I feel Mm -hmm. like there is like so many eras of food culture. And what was interesting also about your episode that you did with Devin Little about BuzzFeed is this idea of talking about like the internet refresh button, Mm -hmm. which I'd never heard of before, but I would imagine is a concept that is floating around, which is basically that every couple of years we hit a reset on our internet habits and Mm want to start over again. And I guess I'm curious if like you think we are in a reset moment or are we waiting for one to approach? I think we're waiting for something to approach. I think a lot of the really big platforms that our generation grew up with and that Gen Z is very familiar with, like Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, I guess, X, formerly known as Twitter, they've been around for a really long time. Like I would say approaching a decade for a lot of these platforms. And TikTok is the newest one of them, but it also reached such a large market share so quickly that it feels much older than it is. And so I think the combination of what feels like a lot of really stale, very dominant, almost monopolistic social media companies means that something new should be coming. I think people are very much tired of what the internet looks like right now. And I think that comes through in a lot of people's feelings about it, where they're like, everything is an ad, which is true, generally. Um And TikTok introducing shopping into the app has made a lot of people really kind of turn off of it as an actual social media platform. All to say, I think we are approaching the need of a social media refresh button. But this is the first era we've lived through where everything has been consolidated onto privately owned platforms. And so I don't think those platforms are going to want to die anytime soon. And I also don't really know what an internet that is not on those platforms actually looks like right now. Like growing up, we had GeoCities. We had... um, Neopets. Neopets. We had Tumblr. We had a Google search function that actually worked. Whoa, crazy. (laughs) No. Um, We had all of these things that weren't necessarily tied up in one company's bottom line. Um, And now if you think about what the internet looks like, we're all kind of just going to the same platforms that are owned by tech billionaires. And so I don't really know what the next version of the internet looks like. People thought it was crypto. I never 
understood crypto and I'm glad I never tried to. <laughs> um, but all to say, I think we are on the verge of an internet refresh button and I have no idea what's going to happen afterwards. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of the reasons why people would want a new refresh button. I think for me, I don't really know if it's possible because mm-hmm. I think that like the movement of monetizing everything online comes from all of these creators that you know don't have uh, a media job or whatever kind of job that would be like paying them to do that kind of work anyways. And we live in a capitalistic society, so there's going to be that happening everywhere. And in terms of like data privacy and all these kind of bummer conversations to be talking about on the podcast, I, just, <laughs> I feel like I don't know how you could escape all of those problems, but I do think people are more aware of the problems now than they used to be. And that totally comes through in this fatigue that you're talking about. And I think like when I go to the comments on any platform, there's going to be people that feel like things have changed in a way that they're not comfortable with or that they don't want to see. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, people have been a People have been complaining about the death of the internet basically since it started. Uh, So I am now one of those people, which means I've aged out of (laughs) a certain uh, bracket. But I think you're definitely right. I don't really know if anything else can come after what we have right now. But I didn't know TikTok was going to be as big as it was going to be. I didn't imagine when I was on the internet when I was 12 that this is what the internet would look like right now. And I think a lot of the creators that you're talking about are realizing that they're beholden to platforms whose incentives are very murky and who have the power to either create or end their career for reasons that will never be clear to them. People talk about shadow banning. People talk about... um, the Instagram algorithm, um, algorithms in general that no one understands. I think the kind of wild west of making a ton of money on the internet doing what seems like very little is over. And I think a lot of creators are realizing that they are, again, beholden the platforms in a way that just isn't sustainable. Yeah, definitely. I think something I heard you talking about on this episode that I was thinking about is the way that there isn't context on TikTok and the way that there is on other platforms, like namely that the algorithm is bringing like all kinds of random things to you. And I think it's interesting in terms of food, for example, because, um, you know, people will be asking like for a recipe for something or for someone to cook this kind of thing that they've actually like already done, but they have, there really isn't even a good way to search, at least when mm-hmm. I was on TikTok. I don't know if they've improved this. No. Of course search not. Search function on TikTok is actually terrible but also just like being able to save on your profile like this is where all of my recipes are and you can scroll through it in Mm -hmm. that kind of way it's interesting that like there's kinds of content like food content that can really thrive on a platform even when it isn't actually like built to be like it's very hard to cook a recipe off of tiktok it is it is especially given the fact that the captions where a lot of people put the recipes are um kind of giant gray translucent text it's just not a platform that's really built to be instructional youtube you can kind of just have running next to you in the kitchen but a tiktok it's going to stop playing and then the next video is going to start playing or it's going to restart even rewinding on tiktok is a pain in the ass so we've talked about what we don't like about tiktok i'm Mm -hmm. curious for some positivity if there are any i know we love positivity (laughs) uh recently like you know when you maybe were online more like when have you like experienced a video or a creator that like made you like actually excited about like the possibilities of like sharing kind of food related stuff online or maybe like not even food, but just kind of like lifestyle content? Mm. I can tell you mine also. Please do. 
Do you follow um, Chucky Cruz and Haley Catalano on like TikTok yes. or Instagram? Yes. So I'm interviewing them on the podcast in the future, which I'm very excited That's about. So exciting. These are this is probably the first time that I've reached out to like a food content creator on TikTok to have them on the show, which clearly I should be doing that more often. But their videos are just so like simple mm-hmm. and like well the food is actually sometimes kind of elaborate but the way that they're telling you about it or doing it like it feels very like it's not uppercase all caps moment mm-hmm. it's kind of like soothing and I think it's clear that they really love to cook yes yes I love Haley Catalano um her videos are yeah they're very simple in a way or approachable in a way that doesn't feel manufactured and also the way that sh- she speaks just over her videos is very soothing I don't know I find something about her voiceovers just so like of course I can do this yeah well also I think like she's clearly her and Chucky are both restaurant people and you can tell Mm -hmm. by the way even that they're sprinkling salt or like chopping something as Mm -hmm. someone that spent time around chefs like you can I can just tell they have that backbone of knowledge and I think that's what makes me feel safe is that like I know that this recipe is going to work and I think that one to me one of the downfalls of maybe people moving away from traditional food media is that like when something's being cross-tested in a test kitchen the odds of it working for you are going to be very high and you have no idea if all of these creators are not even cross-testing but just like checking the measurements or anything like that yeah yeah that's really fair that's so interesting that you note those little visual cues that make you aware that these people are credible because as someone who doesn't have restaurant background I didn't pick up on those cues but I there is something about their content that feels very like I can trust what they're saying and I'm wondering if it's just kind of like subconsciously just like oh that looks professional yeah or they feel comfortable in the kitchen and even Mm -hmm. if you're not noticing like the the fact that they're using like a certain prep bowl or something like that or like a coon spoon whatever industry (laughs) things like the energy is what's coming through Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that makes me think of this reminds me this i'm gonna actually answer your question now of the last food creator who i think really kind of made me want to cook more Um, I think her handle is Kristen Faith Eats, and she does a lot of pasta recipes, which I really appreciate. Um, And her cooking reminds me a lot of what you're talking about with Haley and Chuck, where it feels like I can go to this recipe and know that I'm not going to feel at the end of it, I'm missing a giant step. Because I feel like that happens with recipes sometimes where you're trying them and you get to the end and you're like, I feel like maybe this recipe wasn't that well thought out. Maybe this should have actually been finished in the oven rather than on the stove. Maybe this should have been added in at a different time. Um, And I've never really felt that way with Kristen's food. And it's usually pretty easy to make and it's always delicious. I'll have to check it out. I think what you're saying reminds me of our shared passion and background in journalism, which is that like I would say recipes are service journalism by Mm -hmm. and large. If you're taking the time to share it with somebody, like someone is going to spend time and money and resources and like maybe some emotional stress if they're doing something that they're not comfortable with. And like you want them to feel secure with the end product because there is like a lot more of a risk there or like more of a buy-in that people are expecting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's when you're pretty comfortable in the kitchen, I think you can save a lot of recipes just from kind of figuring out what's going wrong. But those are recipes that I don't really feel comfortable sharing with other people because I'm like, I actually ended up kind of making my own recipe in the middle of this because the one that was given to me didn't really work the way it was supposed to. Yeah. Okay, another thing I want to talk about is Stanley Cups. 
Have you talked about this on your podcast yet? I have not, but I think they have in my absence, which I saw, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I did see that, but I was like, I don't know if it came up before. But the, to me, like, it's so funny sometimes social media lets you see things that like aren't happening around you because I don't really think I see Stanley Cups in New York same, that much. Same. And I think it's because they're really great for car culture. The ones that everyone talks about, which is the quencher. I think is what it's called. Like you know the, the name. I know. <laughs> and this is even me being offline, but it, it's like the big, maybe 40 ounce, but it has a handle. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense if you're living in New York, really, because that's going to be too big to put in a bag that you're carrying around. And most of them have lids that don't screw on, really. They kind of just sit on top, which makes me scared they're going to leak everywhere. Um. So it's really kind of car culture. They sit really well in cup holders. They're really easy to use when you're driving is the vibe that I've gotten from them. But it's wild how popular they've gotten. I feel like water TikTok as a genre has been going for a long time and they started the Stanley craze. And then it just spread all the way through these various sectors of society until where it is now, which is teen and tween girls are making fun of each other for not having real Stanley Cubs. Yeah, which is sad because I feel like for me that was like Converse sneakers or something. I got the Payless version. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. I think the car culture part makes a lot of sense. I think it also, like when you say water TikTok, like do you mean like water sommelier? You would think, but no, most of them aren't actually drinking water. It's these giant cups, usually Stanley cups, and they're mixing together all these different flavor packets or syrups into their water, which means it's not water to my imagination. I don't want to judge anyone for how they hydrate. That's not my job. <laughs> but it just gives me the vibe of someone who doesn't want water, who doesn't actually enjoy the taste of water, and is just adding all of these things to it to make it taste better, which as someone who puts a lot of sugar in their coffee, I get it. But water is a thing you need to survive. Yeah. Do you ever flavor your water? No, I actually really don't even like lemon and water. I'm actually anti-sparkling water. Like, I just Whoa. flat water for me is really all I need. You never had a seltzer moment? No. I just, for me, I have like a really big sweet tooth and I associate carbonation with uh, pop or soda. And so if it's carbonated, I'm like, I want it to be a, a, a Coke. I don't want a kind of mineral tasting water. Yeah. Okay. So what's like a food trend that's happened recently that you have bought into? Well, on the heels of Stanley Cup is the Owala water bottle. And I have one in my bag right now. I, I kind of want to like go look at it. <laughs> what, what's, what do you like about this bottle? It's so nice. I would pull it out right now if it wouldn't cause a bunch of sound. Um, so I needed a new reusable water bottle to like take to the gym and also everywhere because my old one was leaking everywhere. So it's just a typical metal reusable water bottle. But the lid has both like a straw and a way to drink it like when like just to tip it back. A which hamster I, bottle. Kinda. Exactly. Yeah. Which I really enjoy because you don't have to choose between getting like a Nalgene and a Camelback water bottle. You have both. And the lid has two different locks on it to make sure that it doesn't spill. And it's just very sleek looking. It's kind of like the opposite of a Stanley Cup then. It is. Yes. Wow. I love her. I like that. I feel like what I've seen in water bottle culture recently that's been cool is like the small water bottle 
bottles that are very friendly to New York and things when you're carrying it around. And also, if you know that you're going to be at a place where you can refill your water, then it's like half, like a mini, half the size of a normal water bottle. Also, they make like flat ones that are really easy to put in your tote bag. Oh my God. And I think like what is maybe if I'm going to have a positive spin on this whole consumerist nightmare, which I don't know why I'm being Pollyanna, (laughs) but it's very nice that there's different kinds of water bottles for like different kinds of people and their hydration needs. It is. It is. I appreciate that people are trying not to use plastic bottles, though when people reach the level of having 40 different reusable water bottles, it really starts to make me wonder what the point of any of this is. Yeah, I didn't really understand that was happening for a while. And then I did see some of the videos and then I just kind of was like had to sit down for a while and reprocess. And then I also saw the beef that's happening now between Hydro Flask and Stanley Cups on Twitter, which I guess some people, some brands still are on X. Wow. Ruining their reputation on X by beefing with each other. Yeah, because there was lead that was found. Yes, I saw that in Stanley Cup. Yeah. And then Hydro Flask posted this like very self-important and I think it was on Instagram first, maybe they were like, we've been operating for 10 years and there's never been lead in any of our bottles. Like they didn't have to at anyone, but the, we all knew. Yeah, the, the beefing was happening between the brands, which I would imagine must be very interesting to be in a business that inherently you're trying to sell to p- people once, right? That like they have their reusable water bottle. And then now there's like, oh, actually, we could just be targeting people that want to collect them in different colors. Yeah. Yeah. Also, where are we at a society when bragging about not having lead in your water bottles is is advertisement it's that's that feels like that should be a given (laughs) it does feel like it should be a given but who could really say okay so i'm curious for your vibe check on like dining out in restaurants these days is that something that you find yourself doing like Mm -hmm. what are you seeing that you're into yeah i do it pretty regularly i think that's one of the things that i really value is eating a meal um in person i really just during my sabbatical, I've taken to eating at um, restaurant bars and just chilling there for an hour or so with a book, which I really like. I also have a group of friends. Um, our group chat is called Supper Club, and we basically just go to, they pick really well-known restaurants that I am not aware of until I show up. And then we ball out. We recently went to Tatiana, I think like oh, a week really? or so ago. Yeah, I've, I still haven't been, but um, Kwame's food is so great. And it seems like it's a really scenic place to go to. It was so scenic. I also didn't realize it was just straight up in Lincoln Center. It's just right there, which is not a place where I would think a restaurant would be, which I guess is the point. Um, but it was very sceny. Uh, they were playing a playlist that I like to describe as... Um, basically black music that everyone likes so (laughs) frank ocean um (laughs) some old biggie just a very crowd pleasing but not too much drake they might have had something from take care but nothing from post uh started from the bottom (laughs) like that's the vibe of the restaurant and the food was phenomenal i'm so glad you're talking about the playlist because i think to me the playlist in a restaurant is the most interesting thing to fixate on especially if they play music in the bathroom that's different than when they're playing in the restaurant i always want to know why i know well i used to love this restaurant that's like now closed but they would Mm -hmm. always play um 
oh my God, I'm blanking on the name. It's like this very iconic disco track, but oh. it'd be full volume, only in the bathroom, never once in the outside of the restaurant. And I was like, disco bathroom. Like that's my yeah. like that's my new concept is that no matter where I am, it's gonna have a disco bathroom. That's actually iconic. And also I feel like would make me feel better about using the bathroom because it's so loud. You know, you don't have to worry about anyone hearing what you're doing in your little stall because they're just playing Donna Summers. Yeah, actually that maybe was the plan all along. Yeah. I didn't even think about it that way. As a shy pooper, I appreciate this restaurant. Disco bathroom. Disco bathroom. You can advertise it on the website. Come, come to us. <laughs> we have the loudest bathroom in New York City. <laughs> you will be safe. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, before we go, I want to play a little, like, taste check game with you. So I'll give you some right. categories, and you tell me, like, the first answer that comes into your head. Are okay. you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Favorite cookbook? Oh... I don't really have any cookbooks. My roommate has one that's an Ina Garden, 30-minute meals that I look at and I I love because I love Ina Garden. Yeah, shout out to Ina. Yeah. Okay, your favorite, like, food-focused movie or TV show? Oh, my gosh. Does this complicated count by Nancy Myers? She yeah, loves you tell me have. about this food scene in it. Okay, so she runs a bakery in Santa Barbara, and there's this food scene with... Meryl Streep and Steve Martin where they make chocolate croissants after a party like where they've gotten high and the joke is that they're like six-year-olds getting high and they get the munchies and they're like let's go to your bakery and make chocolate croissants together at midnight it's very cute okay I love that you're saying this but you're not actually saying like that I don't know if you know this but this is like resoundingly hated by every baker that I know because it is impossible to make chocolate croissants (laughs) in the amount of time that they do it in the movie it's like a multi-day process so It's like beloved in this kind of like, we love Nancy Myers because it's not possible, but like it seems like it's possible. (laughs) That's so funny. I'm like, wow, I want to go to, I want to go to a bakery at midnight and make chocolate croissants. Like, let me just like produce a a knife and pop your balloon right Mm -hmm. now. It makes it better because it fits into the whole Nancy Myers shtick, right? Which is that it's like not really real, but we're going to let it slide. No, truly. It's all fake. That kitchen too beautiful to actually exist the croissants not gonna happen overnight but and you know what that's beautiful (laughs) we like it for them yeah we do okay your desert island condiment i would probably say frank's red hot something that you will never make from scratch honestly any kind of pastry I'm never making puff pastry. I am never making phyllo dough. I will watch Great British Bake Off, and that is as close as I'm getting to doing any real involved kind of baking that involves chilling and laminating dough. I'm never laminating a dough. I mean, I've given up on that personally, so I I share that with you. (laughs) Your favorite New York City grocery store? Ooh. Um, I really love Mr. Kale. The 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 chain of stores that is Mr. Kale and the Mr. Also, Fruits. Yes, Mr. Fruits. There's one that I go to on Franklin a lot that I don't know if it's Mr. Orange or Mr. Lemon, but it's one of them. Yeah, I live in between Mr. Mango and Mr. Coco, uh, and I used to be my Mr. Carrot. I, I do love, love this them. chain. I yeah. love them. They also have always have beautiful flowers. They do have beautiful flowers. They make their own smoothies. Yes. And they have very affordable fruit mm-hmm. and produce. That goes bad pretty fast, but it's, it's close by. So yeah. you just go when you need it. Exactly. It's like if I need a ripe avocado that night, I'm going to Mr. Kale. Right. And if you need like 40 million other things, you also go there. Exactly. I will spend a lot of money at Mr. Kale. Okay. Your favorite New York City restaurant? Mmm. Honestly, I've been to Laser Wolf twice now, and I love I love her. She's great. Phenomenal. Worth the hype. Your favorite New York City bar? I really love and go to Crown Inn a lot. 
on Franklin. I think it's kind of the perfect bar. I think it's a little divey. I think it's relatively cheap and you can stay there from 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. And that's my favorite thing to do. Honestly, that's like a great bar rundown. Mm-hmm. Okay, your go-to bodega snack. I think if I want something hot, bacon, egg, and cheese, classic. Um, I think if I'm just popping in for something, probably like, this is very basic, but one of those um, coffee drinks that has oat milk in it, you know? Like the prepackaged ones? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, a restaurant that's not in your neighborhood that you wish could magically be your neighborhood restaurant. Oh my God, Ceremonia. Okay. Ceremonia Bake Shop. I know I said that so fast. Instant it's answer. one of the best breakfast burritos I've had in New York. And I spent my teen years in Texas. And so I, and my childhood in Chicago, which also has a lot of Mexican food. New York does not really do Mexican food that well. Which means it's actually pretty hard to find a decent breakfast burrito, which is usually Tex-Mex. Ceremonia in Williamsburg has like the perfect breakfast burrito. I've heard good things. I haven't tried it yet. Have you, you been to Chacaria Ramirez? Mm-mm. This is not for a breakfast burrito, but this is like my favorite restaurant in New York, period, probably. It's okay. a very like Mexico City style taqueria. Oh. We should go. Yeah. It's, it's very good. I would love to. Okay. My last question for you is a fictional food scene that you wish you could eat in real life. Ooh. Have you seen Howl's Moving Castle? Yeah. I think the scene where they're making breakfast with the eggs and the ham, there's just something about the way Miyazaki draws food that is so it's such a normal meal, but it looks like the best thing you'll ever eat. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's a great example. And this has been so much fun, Rachel. Thanks so much for coming on. I've had so much fun. Thanks for having me. Susie Karache, welcome back to This Is Taste. How are you? Oh my gosh, I am so great now that I can see you face to face. <laughs> I last saw you, you were in New York in the fall, but we were in Puglia. I know. We did Italy. a case travels. Mm-hmm. Let's let's just do a quick recap um, about Puglia, and we're going to be going to Greece. We, we have a sold out tour. We're going to go on probably another tour um, in 2025. But w- what, what did you like about Puglia? What was your big highlight? Oh my goodness, I... You know, it was our first. It uh, it was our first experience taking readers of the Mediterranean dish and tastes to the Mediterranean, and I just loved. I think the highlight for me was the community we were able to uh, experience together, but also like. Puglia is so chill yeah. and it's it's just the right place to go if you want to experience the Mediterranean up close and personal. So I loved that we were able to share that as a community together. Uh, I mean, what did you like? What was what was your highlight? That's a great call. I, and I, I just so enjoyed uh, traveling with you and, and about 25 of our readers and We'll be going to Greece and we'll be going all over the place. Taste Travels is this broad program we do here and, and listeners of the podcast will know we're, we have a bunch planned. And, and, and But this was the first one and we didn't really know how, what to expect. But I, I thought the community, we brought together fans of cookbooks and cooking from all over the country. And we got a really curated look at uh, at Puglia. And that is, I, would, I love the word chill. You're right. Because mm-hmm. some of Italy is not chill. Like you, Rome is cool. Milan even even better but man not chill lots of yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and i i thought that it was a really nice time to be with the readers a lot slower probably yeah uh and it it really just it gave us a different perspective i thought on you know just the the way that people value 
uh, you know, they approach food differently. They approach their time with each other mm-hmm. differently. And I think there was just a lot of aha, meaningful moments for yeah. the group. So I can't wait to do it again in Greece. Yeah. Uh, and and this briefly, year. We, 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 we sold out the trip, so I don't want to talk too much about it because, you know, that's, yeah. a little, that's a little unfair. Our, <laughs> I know. Um, we have a waiting list, too. And I will link to it in the show notes. It, it will be sold out, but there is a waiting list. And, and as the trip is structured... Oftentimes, folks will, uh, you know, jump off for various reasons. And, like, we're going to be planning a couple more trips for next year. So sure. stay on that waiting list. It's really fun. But but Greece, yeah, we'll be in Crete and we'll be in Athens and we'll be seeing city. And mm-hmm. what are you looking forward to? I, I think Greece is going to be very interesting and a little different because, like you said, so we're going to go to Athens and see the big city and, and yeah. that bustle of that big city, which has a lot of history as well. And then we're going to go to Crete and do the whole chill uh, Mediterranean island experience. Yeah, yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to just compare yeah. the two and and see what we take in. Yeah. And I've been to Greece before and I love the people. And I think the vibe there, again, is something to look forward to. Very sunny, very... Yeah. Um, Again, chill in a different way. We're kind of being dicks right now, I must say. We're talking about yeah. this trip that's sold out. Yeah. Kind of being dicks. Yeah, but we're not fair. We're not to fair. People, but it's, like, no, nah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, but you can sign up. Be like, listen, like, sign up. We can all, we can talk offline about it. Okay. I want to get you talking about New York. We're in town. Yeah. Um, we, we've been talking about some projects we're working on. Yes. Here at Penguin Random House, hint, hint. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, uh, I want to get a sense of New York for you. I want to, what, what, what have you been enjoying food wise in New York or what are you looking forward to food wise? Yeah, I love this city. So, I mean, so I grew up in Egypt and, and Egypt is at, at least the bigger cities. I'm from Port Said, but also Cairo, Alexandria are kind of places where I hung out a lot. And I feel like the vibe of New York feels so much like home to me. Like I'm, and I, I'm walking the streets and I'm smelling the falafel <laughs> right. and I'm like, okay, I'm home. <laughs> and so oh, I, I really love that. Cool. I just love the vibe in this city. Um, and you can find almost any food in the world yeah. in New York. And that's a big plus for a foodie like me. So I just, I always love to, I travel like with my mouth first. (laughs) (laughs) Like Sava's always my husband. He's always like, okay, I know that we're going to plan our trip around like where to eat and and whatnot. But the best thing about New York is you don't have to plan so hard because you can just walk Mm -hmm. any corner and find something to eat. So um, I love Greek food a lot. So I'm on the hunt Oh yeah, uh, for that. So we'll see. Yeah, Greek food here is 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 definitely uh, Astoria Queens Greek seafood, Molivos yeah. Midtown, and yes. I'm forgetting about a few other spots um, in Brooklyn. But yeah, it truly is amazing. All right, what about Atlanta? Because I I think Atlanta is one of our country's greatest food cities. Yes, such an amazing place. I love going there. You live there. You live there yes. for many years. What's food like in Atlanta these days, restaurant wise? It the, the food scene is really like developing pretty fast in Atlanta. I just, and I should know more, but like I'm a hermit mm-hmm. and I cook at home a lot. Well, so you work a lot. <laughs> and I work many hours. So like people are always asking for recommendations and I wish I had more for them, but I just tried uh, a new Persian place in our area called Delbar mm-hmm. and I just love Persian food. So that's a good place to try. 
Um, what else? Obviously, the barbecue scene. Oh, if yeah. you're in the South, you have got to try something. Yeah. Uh, some barbecue there. Oh, definitely. It's, Are you, like, doing any... What's your favorite, like, barbecue dish? You know, I, I don't mind ribs, yeah. I'll have to say. My God, I mean, that's I've, one I like, like, too. Once in a while, we'll do that. Yeah. Uh, it's not something I do very often, but when I yeah. do, I'm like, oh... This is a South, South. man, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, I want to go back and talk a little bit about, of course, the Mediterranean dish and, and it is a lifestyle brand. There's incredible videos that are being posted weekly. Uh, you've got your cookbook, the Mediterranean dish, which, uh, we've, we've spoken about in a previous episode. I'm going to link to in the show notes. Um, it's all based around the Mediterranean diet. And I wanted to have you in to talk about this diet because this diet isn't really a diet. It's yeah. which is it diet's a weird word. It's like yeah. a style of of thinking about cooking. Right. Specifically, for you, what do you think about with Mediterranean cooking? Yeah, I yeah, you're right. I I don't love to describe it as the Mediterranean diet, but for all purposes it is what people know yeah. of it. And I think the Mediterranean way of eating is just, again, there's a certain vibe to it, a, a certain simplicity, flexibility, um, playing with flavors. Yeah. And that's the most exciting part about it. Uh, but really eating the Mediterranean way, it's just the pattern of food, that the the way that people of that part of the Mediterranean eat. Yeah. So that's how I like to describe it. And um did you, I, I, did I, am I answering your question? You I sure are okay, because <laughs> you're, you're doing what I thought you would do, okay. which is like not answer this qu- dumb question about diet because yeah. it's not about <laughs> diet. It's about a lifestyle. And I think one better way for me to frame it mm-hmm. is like the ingredients that yeah. are, go into this style of, of dieting and then mm-hmm. let us know. And then I got a little story I want to talk about, about Puglia, a little story. Yeah. Say, but. Yeah. Well, so eating the Mediterranean way, I feel is so exciting. Which is why this diet continues to be like every every year the U.S. News and World Report yeah. comes out, right? And everybody's like, what's the number one diet? And it's the Mediterranean diet for the seventh year in a row. And I always like it gives me it's exciting and yeah. it makes me like chuckle a little bit because this diet has been around for yeah. like centuries. Yeah. So it's always been on. It's not a fad. But the, the reason I think it's so successful like and continues to be... Uh, popular is because it just offers a ton of variety in the ingredients. You lean heavy into the plants, and that includes also not just fruit and veggies, but legumes and grains, lots of fiber, uh, good protein from fish and some poultry, and then of course the ever so present extra virgin olive yeah. oil. Uh, so there. There, it's not as prohibitive, which is why it continues to be, you know, it's accessible and it's the variety of it and the flavors from all over the Mediterranean. It's, I think, exciting. Absolutely. It's a fun way to eat. Well said. And and the little story I'm going to say is we were on this trip and we had a traveler and I sat next to her during uh, our trip and she kind of confided to me that she didn't really... Um, wasn't into food. <laughs> she wasn't like a food person. Like many of the people on our show are like food people, but she like didn't really, but she like, f- like cooked your recipes and, and, and watched your, your YouTube and videos because what it did was it made her obviously cook more, made her feel better. And it was like, just like a very like easy for her in her mind to always have the Mediterranean dish there because she knew it was healthy. And that's a very loaded word. 
Yeah, I don't want to use on the show. I know, but it made her feel healthier. Yeah, and I I thought that that was like really cool because like she wasn't obsessed with food, but she was obsessed with the Mediterranean cooking. Yeah, yeah, it's unfussy. I like to think it's it's just a a joyful way to cook and live, and that's the past ten years of my life have been really great. Just sharing everything I know about this way of living with everybody. So it's exciting. So we think about traditionally like vegetables, you know, having, you know, you know, having an olive oil and and acidic component. We think about obviously big salads. I would like to get Susie, your sense of how are you and your cookbook flipping the script on some of these common tropes about the Mediterranean way of, of cooking. What are some surprises? Yeah, I think one of the things that I have run into is when you talk about Mediterranean and Mediterranean food, Mediterranean diet, people immediately think south of Europe, maybe Italy, maybe Greece. Uh, but but it doesn't quickly come to mind places like Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, even where yeah. I'm from, or, you know, uh, the Levant. And, and so the Mediterranean is really big, yeah. like 20 some countries touch the Mediterranean. I think I hope that I have been a, showing people in some small way through the website and the book uh, that there's just a lot more flavors to explore from those parts of the Mediterranean. Yeah. That's one thing that I'm really passionate about. Um, And I think also just the idea of like we as immigrants have borrowed from each other and Mm -hmm. and, uh, have brought with us like people from different parts of the Mediterranean have shared similar vibes for a long time. Maybe maybe there are some distinct cuisines and whatnot, but we also share something in common. I like to think like the Mediterranean pulls us together toward, you know, vibrance and um, just freshness and all that, but also a sense of just hospitality. Yeah, the culturally, uh, the link of of hospitality in the region is is true. And, and, you know, you can say every culture is hospitable at at any time, but, Mm -hmm. but, but untrue. I think that you get a sense of uh, a lot of family people don't, you know, I would say in the Mediterranean, and please correct me, this is assumption, but, you know, a lot of families live maybe closer to each other yeah. um, geographically. Yeah. And and that means that there's a real tradition of having a, a Friday meal um, or a Sunday meal, depending on religious beliefs. Yeah. Um, and in the Mediterranean, that's huge. And, you know, other parts of the world may be less. Yeah, I think so. And and it's part of why I know people are now talking about longevity yeah. quite a bit, right? Mm-hmm. And there is a link between, you know, obviously, yes, what you eat matters, but also community is a part of yeah. that. And so they talk about like how in parts of Greece and Italy, like I think Ikaria, Greece and Sardinia, Italy are two blue zones, they yeah. call them, right? And, and and where people live quite a long life and a, not just a long life, healthy. but a long and good, good life, life and, and, yeah. and a healthy life yeah. and vibrant life. And in uh, every time you talk about that with people from that part of the world, they tell you, it community is a big deal. Yeah. Sitting around the table with people you yeah. love is a big deal. Uh, in in most in in many parts of the Mediterranean, at least from my experience, and I think when we cook and we share the food we love with loved ones, uh, there is more nourishment about it than just like the food itself. Yeah. 
And so community uh, is a big part of the Mediterranean style of, yeah. of cooking totally and living agreed. and everything else, which is another reason why I just love this I work love, you do. You love your job. I love my job. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, traveling in the region, you grew up in, in Egypt and you've, you've traveled extensively, but there's got to be some places in the Mediterranean region that you want to visit. Yeah. What's on the hit list for you, Susie, right now? Where do you, you want to go? You know, I have not been to Morocco, Tunisia, that part of yeah. the Mediterranean. And I think that would just be so exciting. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, I know, like, growing up in Egypt, I am familiar, like, we like I said, borrow from each other, but I would love to go and yeah. experience that. I've been to Turkey, I've been to Greece, Italy, parts of France, but I haven't been mm-hmm. to um, Tunisia. I have Tunisia and Morocco. It takes travels 25. Yeah. yeah. Tunisia, that's a lot of teas right there. Yes. Taste Tunisia. Let's do it. I think it's going to happen. That sounds nice. Let's, let's, ATA folks in this <laughs> let's, let's get that one on the books. I mean, for real... Uh, I feel like there is it's multitudes. It's not there's no monoculture in the Mediterranean, but yeah. it's cool to like think about the way the food is presented in a similar way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let me ask you about uh, future projects and future books. I mean, do you want to write another book? Is this? I know we, the book came out in 22, and yeah. we certainly uh, you've still been touring, and and it's 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 very popular um, still. So it's like you don't necessarily want to rush. But like, what are you thinking about book two right now? What's it? What do you? What's in your brain space? <laughs> well, uh, I won't say that I'm not writing a second <laughs> book. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're always writing. I mean, it, it's yeah. you write you write three to four newsletters a week, and I, I actually I open them all. Um, oh, no, I do, and, and I think they're they're all unique. They're very recipe centric. I'm gonna link to that in the show notes to subscribe, um, because again, it's just a great way to get inspired to cook. But yeah, books. Yeah. You're always writing, but you're thinking maybe. Uh, yeah, I I think it's not out of the question. There will be uh, <laughs> there will be more from the Mediterranean. I love dish. it. Yeah. Well, check this space in the summer. We'll maybe have some news on, on yeah. that one. Yeah. Um. What about Egypt? Have you um thought about going back? I don't know when you've been back. Yeah. Um. And and what is that trip going to be like when you when you head back to Egypt? You know, I I have thought about going back. I haven't been since uh, my father passed away. I think part of it is just like I haven't been able to imagine the space without him. Yeah. He was just such a big personality. I wrote I wrote a bit about him in book one, but I feel like I I need to go back and yeah. and uh, and I think. The next time I go, I'm probably gonna be more more of a tourist. Yeah, just like trying to go places that I hadn't been sure. because living there, you you don't go to every place. You know, you go to the big things. Like I've been to the pyramids so many times, um, but there are places now that I want to go back and see uh, parts of Egypt that aren't super yeah. um, popular. That yeah. should be visited. And and it's a beautiful country and beautiful people. Obviously, I feel that way. <laughs> it's the yeah. bias, but, um, but there is so much more to see, I know, that I haven't seen in Egypt. That show so. Rami, do you ever watch Rami? Yes. So the Egypt section that, like, I think it was like a pocket of season two. Yeah. Was striking. Yeah. Just the culture of Egypt of Cairo. Yeah. Really from a young millennial's point of view, an American and I was like, man, I want to, I want to know more about this world. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's uh, Egypt is just there are layers and layers of things to see in Egypt and like the people. There's just people from all over. Yeah, it's the a world. it's a it's a it's a melting pot. Yes, it is. So and but living there, I don't know about you, but I feel like and maybe this is also the listener's experience. I feel like we grow up somewhere and we don't really investigate it that much. And then we go away somewhere else and live for a while and now we're like Oh, yeah. And we start thinking about our upbringing and our, you know, so in writing books, as you know, we're forced to kind of think about some of our background and and where we came from. And and now I'm just like, oh, I got to see so much more of home yet. Oh, yeah. You know? To that point, I mean, I think you write a book or you become, you work in editorial and you're like naturally curious about Mm -hmm. the world. And so when you start being curious about other cultures and writing about them as you do in your books and in, in your work, you then start to think, be introspective and actually think about it, your own story and you start to actually investigate. But it takes time. Like it took me the better part of 40 years to take a real interest in growing up in West Michigan. I actually didn't have yeah. much of an interest. But now in the last three, four years, I've really been interested in in everything about where I grew up. So, yeah, but it takes time. I think a lot of listeners may be younger and don't really think about their hometown. It takes some time. Yeah, there is a certain like we take some things for granted, but as we grow older, and you know, we start thinking about hmm. how we grew up. It's it's really cool. Yeah, it and is I a, I want to know more. Yeah. So now I'm like asking my mom all sorts of things. I I'm bet. Yeah. Always asking her things, and she's like, "Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that too." Is so your mom like, on? Uh, do you do videos with your mom ever? No. Why not? No, my mom is camera shy. Oh, she and, is. But I've learned a lot from her, and she's always willing to share her recipes. But she's like, I don't think I want to be on camera. I'm like, okay, I respect that. Does she come over to Atlanta and visit? She does. That's yeah, nice. we saw her for Christmas, and so she's always, whenever she comes, she does this thing where she just like cooks and bakes all day, oh, every day. Marathon sessions. Yes, marathon <laughs> sessions. And oh, I'm man. like, oh, thankfully we have two different kitchens. Yeah. So she's. You up yeah. in the home kitchen mm-hmm. and I'm down in the studio, so yep. we're not we're not in each other's space. <laughs> but we did we did bake for Christmas together, and that was really fun. Let me ask you: Your mom's showing up in Atlanta, mm-hmm. probably with some ingredients from Egypt. What what what, <laughs> what, what is she making? What, what what's on the menu? Yeah, so so my mom is um, really an expert at uh, grape leaves. Mm-hmm. She'll make. Uh, you know, the stuffed grape leaves and all the stuffed veggies you can think of. So all the z- zucchini, eggplant, she'll stuff it. She'll make a beautiful uh, rice mixture with lots of herbs in it. And my girls love her food. Um, and she's she's also big on soup, so she'll make different pots. In Egypt, The um, it, it's funny because we've we had many, many, many uh, different flavors from all over the Mediterranean. So it's she she'll cook all these different flavors and then but she won't she won't necessarily know that it's like, oh, this has more Itali- Italian yeah. vibe to it. Like she doesn't she doesn't actually recognize that color. She doesn't kitchen, yeah. yeah, she doesn't stop to like divide like there yeah. are no borders almost right. in her cooking, which is really fun. Um and uh so when she was 
uh, she was with us for Christmas. She made pies and um, different. She makes this Egyptian pie with phyllo dough and a beautiful meat mixture in the middle. And it's kind of similar to spanakopita, mm-hmm. but the Egyptian version has meat in it. No, no, no cheese and spinach. So what? So let me let's dig into that a bit. What's the fragrance? What's the smell? What's the what are the spice blends in this beef? Uh, all spice, a little garlic, a little onion. It's yeah. very simple. Yeah, like that. And she'll just brown the beef and then like she'll make how we make spanakopita, layers and layers of phyllo, you know, uh, and then that meat mixture in the middle. I want to make just, like, this. Cuts it up into, uh, you know, just like squares. And the girls just love it. And I'm like, I make the same thing. I have the recipe on my side, but the girls somehow love hers better. Yeah. And I think there's that sort of like what we call the nefes, like her breath in it, her love and whatever. And they just like, they recognize that's made by that's grandma. True. Yeah. Which so is you, fun. They call her grandma. That's it. Yeah. Teta. 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 Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. well, I, I, I hope that you'll be maybe one video less camera shy and I can I see you guys together. It would love, be fun. I'd love to see yeah. both on cam. It would be fun, yeah. Susie, and this is Taste. We asked guests about the discerning taste. Okay. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? Oh, goodness. Okay, I'm ready. The best fruit? Uh, watermelon. Interesting. Very, very controversial choice. I know. Very controversial. But you are from Atlanta. What makes a good watermelon? Uh, well, I, I, my memories, <laughs> ah, totally. I, I ate watermelon on the Mediterranean with feta cheese and that's like the best ever combo. So I'll always, I love watermelon and feta. What, unbelievable combination. And also when I say controversial, I only meant that I think a lot of people don't like watermelon because they haven't had good watermelon. Oh, right. You know, that's the whole thing. Yeah. You get it in like a fruit salad on your flight. Oh yeah. You know? it's a, sometimes. Yeah. So you got to pick a good one. Gotta it's got to gotta be juicy. The worst vegetable. Uh, oh gosh, I love vegetables. I know you do. I, I don't have. Uh, you, you, okay, there's gotta be just, one that you're like a little. Parsnips. I love it. <laughs> I don't know. Jamie Oliver and you agree uh, that was his. Oh, uh, was that? Yeah, okay. Well, that was see, his, Jamie and I. You and Jamie. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, 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 he was also like, I don't want to like shit talk any, 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 any vegetables, but parsnips. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, not that. I mean, I'm. Probably could make it better if I tried. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you'd make a beautiful parsnip dish. But yeah. Yeah. Just haven't tried. The so. best dessert. Baklava. So your baklava, is it nutty? Is it yeah. like, what's what's it, what's going on? I, we call it triple nutty baklava because I use... There you go. I use hazelnut, um, pistachio, and walnut. In yeah. it, and I, I feel like why choose one when you can have all, you know, all of it. Yeah. So yeah. I like, I like that. And is is but making baklava difficult? Not at all. Yeah. If you can assemble a lasagna, you can make a baklava. It's fine. Well said. <laughs> um, your favorite American fast food chain. Now, as a caveat, mm-hmm. you grew up, uh, you know, you lived in Michigan. We we both yeah. share that state. You also lived um, Iowa. Iowa. So you had some Midwest. So there's probably some. You've seen some fast food in your yeah, day. Yeah, I have. Uh, but my favorite fast food exists in Atlanta. It's Chick Fil A. Okay, fair enough. I it's like an Atlanta company. So yeah. I'm, I'm loyal to them. If I have to, I'm not big on fast food no I, I, I didn't think so if i had to it would be that yeah maybe but not not that often yeah no your favorite cookbook of all time 
Other than the Mediterranean dip. LOL. Okay. <laughs> the Mediterranean. Well, okay, no. I other I, than the dish. No, other than the Mediterranean dish, of course. Uh, yeah. Um, I have I have so many cookbooks now. Yeah. I used to not buy them because I could never follow a recipe, but now mm-hmm. thankfully I have built my library. I love Claudia Roden's books. Oh my goodness. She's a legend Absolutely. and she's really the one who opened the world of Mediterranean cooking to the West. Yes, yes. I will uh, always be grateful for her for doing that. For uh, So yeah, Claudia Roden, I love her. Great call. Also uh, Egyptian, just yeah. a little insert little there. Insert. Did she ever write a book about Egypt? Uh, she has written her books, She, the ones I have, and I have mo- a lot of them. Mm. She does talk about Egypt and her Egyptian yeah, upbringing, yeah. 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 Yeah, She's, yeah she wrote She's a book a, a few years ago for 10 Speed and and is, is based in London and, and, yeah. and still cooking. She's a, yeah, she yeah. is. And she really has done a great job bringing, pu- uh, putting the Mediterranean and the, the cuisine of that part of the world on the map for people in the West. Favorite city outside America to visit for food? A Paris. Yeah. I've been to Paris and I, I wish I paid more attention. So I'd like to go back. You need to revisit. Yeah. I know their food is not quite the Mediterranean food we're used to. Like I think Nice and like yeah. south of France would be more. But there's something about Paris. You cannot deny that there is. I had a... the best couscous in my life in Paris. Yeah. Yeah. There's some amazing North African cooking there. Yeah. So I, I'd love to go back because I don't think I took enough advantage. A cuisine you would like to learn more about? Korean. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to your book. Hey, thanks for the shout out. I appreciate <laughs> yeah. that. Korea World on sale April 23rd. Yeah. I'm just getting shameless at this point. I'm just putting I, it in there. But thank you for saying I that. I think, uh, no, I love Asian food. And yeah. whenever we go out, like I, people are like, what's your favorite Mediterranean restaurant? Well, I don't go to very yeah. many because yeah. I make that all the time. So when we go out, I want to do Korean. I want to do Japanese. So I definitely want to learn about more about Korean food. I well, we do a duck bokey, which is the rice cakes with crimson sauce from uh, gojujang. But we put a little bit of cream in there for a rosé, a rose duck bokey. Oh. And I think you're going to like that one. That sounds really good. Yeah. I can't wait. I'm going to get you a copy soon. Yeah. I can't wait. Your last one, your fa- your favorite sandwich. Falafel. Eh, I'm a falafel. Is a falafel a sandwich? Are we? Yeah. I, I, I think of falafel in All terms right. of a pita, you know, stuffed with falafel. And you just walk around and eat that. And it's like the whole world in your hands. It's I exciting. I fully agree. Yeah. You've yeah. sold me on it. Falafel sandwich. Is it green? Is it brown? Is it doesn't matter? It was brown on the outside, green on the inside. <laughs> green on, that's that's the <laughs> yes, that's your that's version. It. That's my version. That's the falafel emoji that's for you. The, that's it. They should have that. Don't they have it already? I think there, they might there, have there a, must be a falafel pita. Um, I'm gonna guess they do more of like a shawarma, like a beef. Oh, okay. Or lamb. Well, that's another pita. one too. I love. I I, I yeah. will tell you my favorite sandwich is anything in a pita. Yeah. Just put it in a pita and I'm I'm good. So I, my version of a walking taco is in a pita. <laughs> I love it. Have so. you been to Zahav, Zahav at all in I Philly? I have not. And you know what? I would love to. Because I think I have the book. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a beautiful book and loads of flavors that I yeah. want to try. So It's a cool book. Uh, you But you make your own pitas. Yeah. Yeah, you can do it. But yeah, you it's also not buy, hard, but yeah. I can you can buy them. You can too. buy great yeah. pitas around there. I love yeah, anything in a pita, pitas are great when the pita's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Love that. Nice and hot. Always. Susie Karachi, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Thank you, Matt. This Is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.